Tonight I'd like to talk about wisdom, wisdom in practice. If we were all able to talk right now, which obviously we're, we can't, we're in silence, most of us, I think it wouldn't be that difficult for all of us to remember, reflect, and share at least one experience, if not many, experiences where someone shared uh, their own wisdom with us, where somebody inspired us in a way that touched us uh, very deeply, that inspired us to uh, undertake this uh, path, undertake this path of awareness. I know for myself, I've had, you know, in say about 25 years or so of practice, I've had uh, a number of very powerful teachers, people who have shared their wisdom with me, people who have inspired confidence and faith in the practice. And I feel uh, grateful, uh, deeply grateful for their teachings. I also feel a lot of gratitude to the Buddha's teachings, teachings themselves, going through the discourses, reflecting on his teachings. And it, it's, it's an unusual practice um, because uh, after all this time, my appreciation for the practice uh, keeps deepening. More and more levels to understanding this practice, more and more levels of appreciating not only the effort that the Buddha put in, but his understanding and his wisdom. And gratitude for the fact that he shared it with us. At the same time, what I appreciate about all of us being in this room is that we realize that that's not enough. That the wisdom from the Buddhas, the wisdom from uh, teachers, spiritual guides, it, it's not enough. It's really, uh, we're here for more than that. We, we all realize in this room that uh, something else has to happen, that we can't rely on somebody else's wisdom. We can't rely on the wisdom of secondhand knowledge. As insightful as it is, as inspiring as it is, it's still up to us. And, and that's what the Buddha taught, actually. He taught that it was through our own effort that we would get liberated. Not through his, not through somebody else's. And to me, that's one of the most important aspects or dimensions to wisdom, is understanding that it's about seeing for oneself. You know, that we have to see very deeply into the nature of things, ourselves, to be convinced. To be convinced to have that kind of unshakable confidence in what's possible. Wisdom in the Buddhist tradition means seeing things as they are. Very simple. Seeing things as they are. And there are lots of different arenas. There are lots of different areas in which wisdom gets developed. You know, where wisdom operates. And one area that I think uh, becomes quite apparent uh, when we begin the practice, when we begin to sit and walk, or we begin an awareness practice, is that you know, it unfolds differently for everybody. We all have our individual karma. You know, we, ha- we all carry into this retreat a, a legacy of the past that's quite long. You know, we've-, we've had thousands and thousands and thousands of experiences that have left impressions, you know, have left impressions in our heart, left impressions in our minds, left impressions in our bodies, 
And of course, what happens when we begin to practice? One thing that happens is they begin to surface. We begin to see our experience more directly. We begin to see the kinds of things that we've accumulated over time. You know, both the good and the bad. I think a lot of times in practice, there's there's a lot of uh, uh, emphasis on kind of the difficult, seeing the hard things that we've accumulated, all the difficult experiences that we've had. And sometimes uh, in the heat of the battle, you know, in, in the practice, we sometimes forget to look at, to appreciate the, the different qualities that all of us have been developing all along, you know, all along. Just the courage to come here, you know, the courage to come and leave things behind, you know, and to leave the books behind, and to leave our everyday relationships, the security of all of that, and to come into this kind of world of the unknown, and, and to really open up, and, and to be willing to live in, in a certain amount of discomfort, you know, living among strangers, you know, living with 60 people, 70 people, how, I don't know how many people are here. But, you know, it, it, it's a challenge. And uh, all of us have met that challenge. You know, we're here. At the same time that we have this individual karma, we have different things coming up in practice, different things to work with. The way healing happens, you know, the way we begin to let go of these impressions, we all have these different impressions inside. The way that we begin to heal, the way they begin to unfold, the way we begin to let them go, happens in a very, not such a personal way. And that process itself of freedom, of unfolding, of letting go, it's much more universal than we think. And a lot of it depends on seeing what we're experiencing very directly and to begin to see more universal characteristics in the experience itself. Most of us get caught up, deeply caught up, in the content of what the experience is, in the characteristics, the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of the experience. We tend to take experience very, very personally. And that's part of the difficulty. The part of the difficulty to opening up to it is because we identify with these past impressions. You know, they come in early. We don't have mindfulness. We don't have that ability to look, to attend to, to absorb, to see. We don't have that skill. And so we accumulate impression. You know, and those impressions unfold as time goes on. But when we begin to see more universal characteristics, when we begin to see, first of all, the fact that every experience you've had here since you've arrived, this is something we all share. Every experience that you've had has changed, has arisen and passed away. Has arisen and passed away. Now, an experience that looks exactly like that experience sometimes comes up again. Like the 215 sleepiness. Okay? It looks like the same experience. It isn't actually. It's a new day in a new time. Okay? So there are patterns. There are things that do come up in a regular way. But when we start paying closer attention, we begin to see the changing nature of these experiences. The fact that they arise under certain conditions. That's an important insight. That's an important aspect of wisdom to see is the fact that these experiences arise under certain conditions and they also pass away. 
they arise under certain conditions. They're conditional. You remove the conditions and the experience changes. You know, I made that joke at the end of the 2.15 sitting, you know, three o'clock, the sleepiness changes, passes away. But it's true. It's amazingly true. You hear that bell and all of a sudden you get some energy. And that just that, that ringing sound. And all of a sudden you wake up. You know, and the energy and, and a little more enthusiasm, whatever, going outside. The conditions have changed and the experience has changed. It's not so personal. It's not so personal. You know, we've talked a lot, well, maybe not a lot, but some anyways, about the hindrances. I'm going to talk a little bit more about them. Because they are experiences that we tend to take very personally. Those are experiences that we take and that we identify very strongly with these hindrances. One thing that helped me sort of uh, see the, to kind of hold the hindrances in a different way, in a, in a wider way, in a, in a, in a less uh, personal way, was uh, something I found in the Buddha's teachings in his description of the hindrances. Um, remember that uh, the Buddha lived 2,500 years ago. That's a long time. That's a long time ago in a very, very different culture. In a very different world. Things have changed radically since then. But at the same time, well, it's amazing how close to the heart uh, these teachings are. And uh, the Buddha described, talked about the mind, you know, and talked about wisdom, and the, innate, uh, undis- the, uh, the innate nature of the mind, the kind of the pure state of mind. And he described that as a clear forest pool. That's kind of stillness and calm. That's, that's, in, that's potentially within all of us. Clear, calm, cool, forest pool. And what are the hindrances like? Well, sense desire, the Buddha described as the pool filled with colored dyes. The, fo- the, the pool filled with colored dyes. You know, think of that fantasy, you know, that fantasizing mind. Colored dyes. Pretty, but they also distort the clarity of the water. The second hindrance of aversion described as hot boiling springs. Hot boiling springs. Doesn't aversion feel that way? It sure does to me. You know, this heat, there's this trouble boiling quality to it, totally lack of, uh, lack of being settled, lack of acceptance. That's aversion. The third is sleepiness and dullness, and this is my favorite one. Uh, and sleepiness and dullness is thick layers of algae. On the, on the surface. Thick layers of algae. Definitely feels like that. Um, the fourth is restlessness. Restlessness is described as winds blowing on the surface of the water. So much that's what restlessness is about. It's winds blowing on the surface. And they kind of, once again, they distort the depth, the calmness that lies underneath the restlessness. The fifth is self-doubt. Self-doubt, the legacy of self-doubt, the hindrance of self-doubt. And self-doubt is described as mud stirred up from the bottom. Mud stirred up from the bottom. I think that's so succinct, succinct description because it really is. 
It's all that karma. It's all that conditioning. All those old ancient voices that have told us that we can't do it, that it's not possible. It's for somebody else. It's not within my reach. And that's really the mud that's getting stirred up from the, from the bottom, from our history. And that description of that hindrances, to me, really points to the fact that the, that, that the teachings are minds, really. There's something universal about our minds and the way they operate. And so beginning to see that, to, to begin to hold those experiences that way, that they're not so personal, that we don't have to identify with these different states of mind as they arise and pass away. But also wisdom has something to do with developing skillful means, ways to work with the hindrances. It's not enough just to know that that's what our experience is, that we're sleepy or dull or that we're feeling restless or we're feeling aversion or we're lost in fantasy. It's not enough just to know that. We need to learn how to bring the mind more into balance. Because that's the effect when we get caught up in the hindrances, is that it throws the mind out of that natural balance. It stirs up the water. It stirs up that calm forest pool. And so we have to learn for ourselves how to bring more calm, how to bring more balance to the mind when we are facing these difficult energies. And they are hard energies. But they're workable. There's ways of working with it. And wisdom comes out of the work itself. And working with sense desire, the mind that fantasizes, the mind that wants, the mind that's always looking into the next moment, if only things, if I only had, if only things were this way, that wanting mind, the mind that fantasizes. One extremely helpful way, well, first of all, all five of the hindrances, the classic antidote, the classic way of bringing the mind into balance with all the five hindrances is mindfulness. That's, that's the one that works, it can work anyways for all of them. And in in why it works, why it helps bring the mind into balance is because mindfulness has this ability, it is, that sustained attention to the experience. And when we bring attention, when we have the wisdom to remember to be mindful, when we have the wisdom to remember to be mindful, and that's what takes practice, Some of us are getting the hang of what it means to be mindful. We see the difference between mindfulness and thinking. Mindfulness is that observing quality of mind. Well, when the mindfulness gets stronger and we start being able to observe these hindrances, when you can start looking at sleepiness and see how it shows itself up in the body, or you can begin to feel the fidgetiness in the body with restlessness, or you begin to feel the heat of aversion, when you begin to see this, or when you begin to penetrate that bubble of fantasy, when you begin to see that it's just a state of mind, not the real thing, that these dialogues are really going on inside us, not outside of ourselves. And when you begin to see fantasy for fantasy, mindfulness allows us to see those experiences and, begi- and to begin to see that they're changing from one moment to the next. We begin to see their processed nature. We begin not to identify with them so much. Probably everybody here has begun to taste that already. You may not realize it. But taking, once again, that 215 sitting, it's a good example. Say you've had that sleepiness every sitting, okay, right, from the first day on. Maybe it still keeps coming up, or there's some sitting during the day that's always sleepy. Okay, the first couple of days you come, you know, there's a lot of expectation, you know, and, and sometimes we get discouraged, we get very reactive to the sleepiness, especially if it comes up a few times during a sitting. 
and the mind starts getting very tight, we get dis- discouraged, disappointed, we get angry and annoyed, we start regretting coming here, uh, we start telling ourselves all sorts of stories. The wisdom that got us here in the first place is like way in the background, and now that hindrance of self-doubt is growing. And over the days, you know, if we stick it out, and everybody here has, if you stick it out, what happens on the third or fourth day is you begin to say, oh yeah, I know this state of mind of sleepiness. I survived it yesterday. I survived it from the day before. I'm still here. You know, I'm still struggling maybe, but I'm still here. That's insight. Okay, that's, that's wisdom. Because you're beginning not to identify so much with the sleepiness itself. We're not reacting so strongly against it. I mean, when you first sit down and you start feeling restless, it's very discouraging. It's hard. But after a while, you, know, you begin to hang out with restlessness. There's less aversion to it. And then the mind begins to settle down a little bit more. And that's coming out of our ability to pay attention to our experience. That's coming out of our ability to see very directly from one moment to the next exactly what the true nature of that experience is. Going past the personal. Going past that idea that this is me that's sleepy, but really beginning to see sleepiness as a conditioned process. It may not have so much to do with you. But it's happening. You know, sitting up here, looking out at everybody's head, I can tell you, you shouldn't take sleepiness personally. Because at least half the room is nodding at the same time. You know? It's a shared experience. Okay? It's not just confined to you. Okay. So mindfulness is a way of, of beginning to penetrate this illusion of self. That this is me who, who's experiencing the sleepiness. And this is the growth of wisdom. The growth of wisdom. wisdom sp- the Buddha said wisdom springs out of mindfulness. Okay? But sometimes mindfulness isn't enough. Pure and simple. As powerful as, as it is, it's not enough all the time. We have to learn, we have to develop more wisdom than just mindfulness. We can't rely always on mindfulness. Mindfulness is tremendously helpful, essential in the work. But we also have to look at our experience and learn from our experience in other ways. And one practice that the Buddha taught, say working with fantasy, for instance, you know, that the mind that tends to wander into fantasy, but also the mind that indulges in fantasy. You know, you're feeling bored or feeling low energy. Well, let's start thinking about other things. You know, let's think about that vacation and the, or thinking about leaving the retreat or start, uh, you know, creating all sorts of scenarios in the mind. Well, wisdom is... In this particular case, anyways, wisdom is the wisdom of restraint. The Buddha taught a lot, talked a lot about the wisdom of restraint. And that's recognizing that we're engaging in fantasy and choosing not to do that. You know, saying to ourselves, not now. This isn't the time. This isn't the time to plan. You know, as we move along in the retreat, that planning mind can take over. It's very, very seductive to start thinking about the end and to thinking about the future. And there's nothing wrong with that coming up. There's nothing wrong with the planning mind coming up in retreat. Nothing wrong with fantasy. But it's how you relate to that fantasy, how you relate to those plans that's going to make the difference. And whether you suffer or whether you deepen, whether you, you learn not so much to suffer. And the wisdom of restraint is recognizing, okay, I'm lost in fantasy. I'm going to come back to the breath. You know, I'm going to try to stay present. You know, I'm going to see what's happening right now. 
It's a conscious choice. It's not a repressive thing. It's not like you're pushing those plans out. It's not like you need to even judge them. They're not bad. But it's recognizing where you want to put your energy, where you want to put your attention. There's a lot of suffering in relying on fantasy. You know, there's a lot of suffering in our minds when we rely on fantasy to to bring us happiness, to bring us peace, because it's so impermanent. It's so imaginative. It's so much often based on an escape from the present moment. And hence, it really fuels and reinforces discontent. And so recognizing that we're not going to put our energy into fantasy, instead we're going to pay attention to what's going on now. We're going to come back into the present. We're going to come back into the body. We're going to start observing fantasy instead of being lost in it. You know, we're going to be with the experience exactly as it is. That commitment to be with the experience exactly as it is, over and over again. That's wisdom. That's wisdom right now. With aversion, you know, sometimes aversion is so strong that mindfulness just, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it just, it's just mindfulness hasn't been developed so strong. We've been developing aversion all our lives. We just started doing the mindfulness thing. So kind of aversion can pretty much uh, beat up on mindfulness uh, pretty easily. Um, so that's why we introduced metta. Yeah. Uh, metta is a powerful practice in working with aversion. So we want to encourage you, that skillful means recognizing that you're feeling troubled in some way, that the mind is feeling very judgmental or contracted, that's a time to do a little bit of metta. You know, send some loving kindness to the mind, to our hearts, to balance that contracted energy of aversion. That's skill. That's wisdom. It's not escape. It's bringing more balance to the mind so that you can be with things as they are, so that you can open even more deeply to aversion, so that the mind becomes more balanced and calm so that you tap into other qualities that aversion is kind of obstructing. So metta. Sleepiness, you know, we've already talked a lot about that, standing up, all that. Restlessness. Restlessness often reflects the lack of concentration. You know, when the mind is distracted, when the mind is thinking about other things, it, it, it gets restless. One extremely helpful way to work with restlessness is to sit very still. It's kind of counterintuitive. You know, we think with restlessness that somehow we're going to get some relief by moving. The hall is very still. It's very still. People aren't moving a lot. It's very inspiring in a way. Not to create an ideal now that you can't move, but one way of working with restlessness is sitting very still. It's different than moving when you're in pain. But, but sitting very still when you're restless. Take that vow. You know, two or three minutes, you're not going to move a muscle. You know, not even move a muscle. You're just going to sit dead still. Sometimes what that does is the mind will just settle and sink. Just come to a place, just sink below the surface of the wind. Just by itself. So that's a helpful way. That's, that's wisdom. It's, it's taking on that energy of restlessness and seeing what you can do to bring balance to the mind. Self-doubt. Difficult energy. One of the most difficult. Self-doubt usually arises under, I mean, it doesn't usually, it always arises under certain conditions because it is a conditioned experience. Self-doubt isn't who you are. Guaranteed, it's not who you are. It may feel that way, but it's not who you are. It's not telling you the absolute truth about yourself. Nobody here knows what the absolute truth is about themselves. There may not be an absolute truth about yourself. But self-doubt is kind of telling you that this is what's possible. This is who you are. This is what you are capable of doing. 
I can't do this. Okay, that legacy, that voice. Okay, self-doubt. One very skillful way of working with self-doubt is to begin to recognize the conditions. Begin to look at some of the patterns. You know, first of all, mindfulness tells you that you're experiencing this state of mind. That's very freeing to recognize self-doubt as a state of mind. Tremendous freedom came in my practice when I, rec- when I could begin to recognize self-doubt as a state of mind. You know, something that was coming up in that it, would, that it would come up under certain conditions. Now, usually for most of us, self-doubt comes up under the conditions that uh, are difficult. Okay? When we're experiencing other hindrances, you know, that kind of uh, story about you know, multiple hindrance attacks, you know, where, where we get you know, hit with three or four all at the same time. We're restless, we're feeling aversion, uh, we're judging ourselves, we're judging everybody else. Um, self-doubt kicks in, what am I doing here? Why did I come? That's, you know, those are the conditions that self-doubt comes up. Those moments when you're really quiet, you know, feeling really peaceful finally, you know, after maybe, you know, a long time of sitting, finally, you know, you get to that place where it's really quiet, self-doubt isn't going to come up during that time. You know, it comes up when that particular experience changes, you know, when it goes away and something else comes up, another challenge. We start getting distracted or thinking about other things, and then we get discouraged. So beginning to recognize self-doubt and to begin to, to play with it, in a sense. Begin to see when it comes up. You know, it doesn't come up just in the sitting or the walking. It doesn't come up just at IMS. IMS is a good place for it to come up. But it doesn't come up just here. It comes up in our life. It's part of what comes up. And like I said, we have that individual karma when we come to retreats. Well, we get exposed to what's there. And we're all carrying that baggage of self-doubt. And so when we open up to what's there, when we finally stop and start taking a look, well, we, get, we, we face that awful, awful voice, that voice that we all hate, which is that voice that tells us that we can't do it, we're not good enough, or whatever. So recognizing the conditions that it arises under. Sometimes it's helpful just to see the hindrance. You know, seeing, the, oh, there's a version? Ah, oh, there's where self-doubt came out of. Helpful way of working with it. As we uh, get more skillful in working with the hindrances, and this is what happens for everybody in practice, uh, it's no magical trick. It's, it's what happens in practice. Is, uh, I mean, it, uh, is when you begin to practice, everybody faces the hindrances and they face it, you know, throughout a lot of their practice. Uh, it comes, they come and go, just like anything else, hindrances come and go. Uh, but over a period of time, we develop more and more skill in working with them. And what happens is the, the fruit of that, the fruit of all that work, is that the mind beca- gets to be more balanced, comes more into balance. It starts relaxing at a much deeper level. It starts tasting more freedom. You know, the freedom of not being caught up in these states of mind, but allowing them to be there, to experience them, and then watching them pass away. There's a tremendous freedom. You know, there's, a, there's a letting go and a letting down and a settling back that comes when we don't get so anxious about the hindrances, when we don't get so reactive. And then when the mind starts getting even more settled and more calm, we begin to see more deeply into the mind. We begin to look. We can look for, more, uh, for a longer period of time. We can look 
the mindfulness gets stronger, the concentration gets stronger, the mind starts calming down because we're not being so reactive, because we're not being pushed around so much. And then we begin to understand, and this is the understanding that comes out of this practice, is we begin to understand more the nature of our suffering. Now that may sound kind of depressing, getting to know our nature of our suffering, but it isn't, because that's where freedom is. Freedom comes through wisdom. It comes through seeing the nature of our suffering. Because once we understand suffering, once we understand the source of our suffering, we can let it go. If you don't see it, you can't let it go. You carry it around. You keep doing the same thing over and over again. You keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And so it's through seeing that liberates. That's the way out of suffering. That's the irony. That's what goes against so much of our conditioning. We've been so deeply conditioned to think if we try to get away from suffering, that's the way out. The way in is not to indulge in suffering and to get lost in it, but to understand it through direct observation, seeing directly, clearly for yourself what is the cause, what is the source of the suffering. And that, that, that understanding doesn't come through the analytical mind. It doesn't come through figuring things out. Because a lot of times when we deal with our suffering through that approach of figuring out, what we're, what we're actually doing is figuring out how to try to get away from it. Because we're reacting to the suffering. We haven't, we're unable to be there fully present for the suffering. And so we try to fix it. We try to get away from it. Rather than to face it. To face it with that power of mindfulness. That ability to observe. To be with it. With more tranquility. When we begin to see suffering, when we begin to understand the cause, what we discover, what we discover, I feel, is very much what the Buddha uh, taught about. And the Buddha identified kind of three different forces that are within us that cause our suffering. Three different reactions in the mind. Three different uh, responses to life, uh, to our experience, that are very deeply conditioned in us. Right from the get-go. You know, we're conditioned to have certain reactions, certain responses to experience. And those reactions, those responses, are what they call the kalesas in Pali. Sort of karmic forces in the mind that obstruct the innate wisdom, that obstruct the innate clarity, the innate freedom that's inside us. The practice isn't about becoming. It's about uncovering and unfolding and looking directly inside and finding it inside, within us. Everyone here has the seeds. It's a question of uncovering them. And in order to uncover them, we have to encounter the obstacles along the way. We have to uncover the kind of forces that are going on inside us. We have to, unco- we have to look at the way things are. And the three reactions are that when we experience pleasant sensations, we often cling to those pleasant sensations. We cling to them. We've been trained to cling to the pleasant, to hold on to it, as though that that's going to bring us some degree of happiness. Nothing wrong with pleasant, but it's the clinging that causes the suffering. It's the clinging that causes the pain. The second reaction is aversion or hatred, rejection of the unpleasant. Our training tells us that when we encounter something unpleasant, go the other way. Push it away. Get away from it. It's not good. 
something bad about it. And it's deep, that conditioning, to move away from the unpleasant. Something tells us, we've been told, to get away from the unpleasant means to be happy. To get away from the unpleasant means to be happy. The third is delusion. It's kind of confusion in the mind. It's the mind that ignores the neutral. You know, we cling to the pleasant, push away the unpleasant, and then we don't pay attention at all the, you know, to, to the neutral. Things that, you know, we don't... So many, so many of our experiences, we're really just kind of keeping at a distance. And that's delusion. And those three reactions, kalesis, the kalesis, greed, hatred, and delusion. Once again, those particular reactions, they're born out of ignorance. Those reactions are born out of ignorance. And what do I mean by ignorance? What I mean is they're born out of a lack of understanding of the way things are. Wisdom is to see things as they are. The kalesas are born out of the ignorance of not seeing things as they are. And what, what aren't we seeing? What we're not seeing is the fact that all of these experiences that we're reacting to, whether it's clinging, pushing away, or ignoring, all those experiences are impermanent. They are impermanent, no matter what we think about them, no matter what we want from them, no matter how much we enjoy them, or no matter how much we hate, they are impermanent. That is their true nature. Their true nature is impermanence. They're changing. And they are also conditioned. The experiences that we have are conditioned. They arise under certain conditions and they pass away. That's their nature. The Buddha. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. We don't see that. We don't see that. We may know it. We may know it intellectually. We may know the fact that people live and people die. Different experiences come and go. That we have a past. We have a present in the future, and it, you know, it's a little bit unpredictable. We don't really know exactly how things are going, but we don't see it on a moment-to-moment level. We get caught up in our experiences. We take our experiences when we're in the middle of them, when we're lost in them. We take them as permanent. We take them as much more solid than they are. We don't see the impermanence, because if we did see the impermanence, our relationship to it would start changing. And that's what wisdom does is it allows us to begin to see experiences as they are. And then, lo and behold, our relationship to those experiences starts to change. Our relationship to the hindrances begin to change when we apply wisdom to them. Instead of getting reacting, instead of getting caught, getting lost, getting identified with them, taking them as personal, taking them as solid, we begin to see that they're impermanent, and our relationship starts changing. We begin to relax. It doesn't mean that we never feel sleepiness. After 20 years of practice, it doesn't mean that we don't have fantasies or that we don't get restless, that we don't get agitated, or that we might not have some aversion. It doesn't always mean that. But it means that when we do have these different experiences, we don't react so much to them. We don't identify. They arise and pass away. They don't disturb us as much. We develop what they call in this, in this tradition equanimity, balance of mind, balance of heart. We don't get overwhelmed by the unpleasant. Our ability to accept and to work 
with the difficult grows in this practice. You know, the kind of energy that you're putting in your practice now is an investment. You know, it's an investment in the now, and how you're relating to now. But it's also an investment in the future, in what's going to unfold. You know, because you're developing certain skills that you can take into your life, into the moment, from moment by moment experience. You can take this, this practice, this skill. It's very portable, this practice. It doesn't depend on Barry. It doesn't depend on a meditation center. You can take your practice with you. Why is it so important to understand these classes? You know, why is it so important to recognize these different forces and to begin to work with them in a different way? Well, when I say that they're the source of suffering, you know, they're not just the source of our own suffering, our own personal journey suffering, but they also cause a lot of trouble for us and other people. You know, just look at the world. And you know, all of us here, I'm sure, have no difficulty at all recognizing that so much of the suffering and so much of the sorrow uh, is avoidable, doesn't have to happen. Certainly doesn't have, things don't have to be the way they are. They happen because of certain conditions. They happen because of the human mind. And they happen because of the calaises in people. The fact that we are motivated, that we do get pushed around, that we do act from places of greed. We do act from places of aversion. We do act from places of delusion. And we cause a lot of harm to ourselves and to others. This is from the Dhammapada, once again the Buddha. Speak or act with ignorance, and trouble will follow you, as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with awareness, and happiness will follow you, as your shadow, unshakable. Unshakable. That's the kind of peace that we want. It's the unshakable kind. And it's through our actions. You know, it's through the wisdom of our actions and the wisdom of our speech that happiness follows us. You know, we, uh, understanding that our actions have consequences. Our actions have consequences. And we need to look at that very deeply, what those consequences are. We need to take that seriously. And it's wisdom that's going to lead us to actions that, that don't cause harm. And once again, mindfulness is that... Mindfulness, the function of mindfulness, one of its major functions, is protection. That ability to know what your experience is protects you from acting in unskillful ways. Protects us from doing unskillful things, things that we regret. Things that cause harm. And once again, wisdom is not just relying on mindfulness. That's why the Buddha talked a lot about ethics and ethical guidelines. Because it's the wisdom of ethical guidelines that sometimes, like I said, mindfulness gets you know, pushed around. Mindfulness gets forgotten. It gets squa- squashed quite easily. And quite often it gets squashed by self-interest. Yeah. Self-interest really is a very powerful thing. Very, very powerful. And it motivates a lot of our actions. And it gets us into a lot of trouble. But mindfulness isn't enough. The, uh, the princ- guiding principles of non-harm, you know, not harming ourselves or others. You know, once again, they're not rules, you know, they're not regulations, they're not coming from an upper authority, 
but more it's uh, using diff- the different, like the five precepts that we talked about at the beginning of the retreat. Those precepts also apply to our life. It's a very different context. They become more complex in some ways in a different context. But seeing the wisdom in restraint, once again, seeing the wisdom in uh, not causing harm. It's an important dimension of wisdom. And what happens, that allows the mind to calm down. You know, if we're engaging, if we're living in harmony, we're recognizing our interdependence, everybody here is, inter- is interconnected. You hurt somebody else, you hurt yourself. That's what the Dalai Lama o- often talks about. You know, you hurt somebody else. You're not just hurting them, you're hurting yourself. You know, seeing that interdependence, that wisdom of that, as a guide, as a guide to life. Fortunately, mindfulness also has another power. It has many, many different powers. Uh, But one of its powers is that it deconditions. That's the power of mindfulness. It deconditions. In other words, when it meets something, it meets it with that non-judgmental attention. And what happens is the reaction softens. Gradually, slowly, slowly. It's like waves lapping against the beach. Slowly but slowly, the reactions begin to erode. They begin to soften. The aversion begins to soften. The clinging to the pleasant begins to... We begin to let go. Mindfulness deconditions. It helps transform those reactions. You, know, you ever go walking by... Every time I go walking by this dog down the end of the street, he barks at me. He's on a leash, he barks at me. And he barks at me like I'm about to come on his land and attack the owners or... Or something like, you know, I, I don't know what he imagines from me. Uh, and every day I walk by him, and he does the same thing. And somehow he doesn't get the fact that I am clearly not a threat to him, or his uh, owners, or family, whatever. Uh, that's conditioning. That's conditioning. You know, there's no freedom in that. There's no mindfulness, there's no attention, there's conditioning. That's reaction, you know. Uh, lack of mindfulness. We have mindfulness. That's why human life. That's why it's top of the list there. Okay, um, we have that potential, you know, to change that barking. We don't have to bark every time somebody walks by. We have to do that. We can just sit there and kind of watch. Uh, we can protect ourselves if somebody does come along, but if they don't, we sit there and watch in peace. Mindfulness deconditions, it changes those reactions. We don't have to act in the same way. We can respond to life in a very, very different way. Sometimes, you know, we talk a lot about impermanence uh, in Buddhist practice and insight meditation. And sometimes people think, well, that means, uh, you know, that, that we shouldn't value our experience. In other words, the deduction is, well, if everything's changing, well, then none of this really matters, and practice goes into being detached from experiences. Okay, that means, like, you know, experience doesn't really matter. Why pay attention? You know, why? It's, it's, em- it's all empty anyways. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Um, practice is, co- is qu- quite contrary to, to that particular approach. What practice does, I feel anyways, from my experience, is that, that it, it, it brings a fullness to life instead. 
Instead of seeing, you know, that we don't value, one begins to value each moment. Because when you're present, when you're open to each moment, there's something special in that moment. There's, there's energy, there's joy, there's interest. The littlest things can reveal the deepest truths when you're present. So everything, in some ways, becomes significant. Maybe. But it's not valued above. It's not at the cost of other experiences. The pleasant isn't better than the unpleasant. It's just different. It's just different. There's different characteristics, different qualities, but it, too, arises and passes away, quite often out of our control. When we begin to see this at a moment-to-moment level, you know, when we begin to see this changing nature, when we begin to respond to life without so much fear, without so much clinging, you know, without so much investment in the moment itself, you know, without clinging on to those changing experiences, well, the mind becomes more stable. You know, we begin to discover an inner contentment inside ourselves that doesn't depend that doesn't rely on changing experiences so much. It begins to find the source of happiness is within ourselves. Not outside of ourselves. Not in those fleeting moments. But it's in the quality of presence. It's in our relationship to all of this that's unfolding. That's what matters. That's where we're going to find the deepest level of peace. Is in our relationship to all this unfolding of pleasant and unpleasant, of all sorts of people that we meet, experiences that we have, what's going to matter is how we relate to those people, how we relate to this moment, how we relate to these experiences. That's what's going to matter. for something. Ajahn Sumedho. Well-being is simply knowing things as they are without feeling the necessity to pass judgment on them. Without the necessity to pass judgment on them. Think about that. Well-being. That sense of ease. Of contentment. Not having the need to pass judgment on all these experiences, but really that that ability to just be with them, exactly as they are in their fullness. You know, without pushing them away, without clinging, just living life fully, taking each moment as it comes. There's a real sense of freedom, inner freedom in that way of living. I'd like to finish with something that Krishnamurti said. When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or solution even, neither resisting nor avoiding, it is only then that there can be a regeneration. Because when the mind is capable, 
because then the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. It's the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. But it's seeing things as they are that liberates us. And that's, of course, what we're practicing. Over and over again, every time you come back to the present moment, that's what you're training yourself to do, is to see things exactly as they are. And in seeing that, one finds liberation, one finds freedom. And that, of course, is the path of the Buddha, and that's the practice here, seeing things as they are. So let's take a few moments to sit. May all beings come to rest with the way things are. May all beings find peace. May all beings be liberated. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.